for May 6th, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 253, Iron Man 3, bitten by a radioactive 1980s. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, California, I am Matthew Rather, your host, and we are here to talk about uh, a little-seen indie movie funded on Kickstarter, uh, <laughs> crowd-sourced. Crowd uh, I'm a proud supporter. Yeah, exactly. We, we and so, um, no. <laughs> F it. I'm Iron Man. <laughs> uh, the uh, we're talking about Iron Man three. Here is the panel to talk about Iron Man three. Uh, panel in honor of Iron Man three. And by the way, blanket spoilers for all of Iron Man three. Uh, anything that you can Wikipedia about the Marvel universe and um, season two of Downton Abbey. <laughs> so uh so panel in honor of iron man 3 which begins with the flashback to 1999 new year's eve 1999 the turn of the millennium though not really as we all know uh that was new year's eve 2000 but what were you doing uh on new year's eve 1999 drink because first in the alphabet is not peter fenzel it's matthew belinke Okay, here's the deal. Uh, the first decade of the new millennium, I think we can all agree, was sort of haunted by the specter of apocalypse and, and uh, terrorism that could strike out of the blue at any moment. And indeed, uh, the second decade appears to also be haunted by the same specter, perhaps the entire <laughs> millennium. But certainly in, in a way that, let's say, that the 90s were not, it was sort of this feeling that like everything could come crashing down at any moment. Um, so here's the deal. My parents were very afraid that something bad was going to happen and they were they weren't sure whether it was going to be uh, a technical breakdown of society a la uh, the beginning of the show revolution or whether it was going to be like a, a, a terrorist attack and this was before terrorist attacks were, were uh, everyone was afraid of them my parents were way ahead of the curve on that Did one mean they were into terrorist attacks before it was cool before i didn't want to say before it was cool <laughs> but yes they were into it before they were they were they were uh, they were terrorism. early adopted. They were early terrorism adopters. Yeah, they were they were terrorized before it was cool. They're they're terrorized hipsters. Um, so basically, here's the deal: that both my brother and my sister had arrangements to be in New York City for New Year's Eve, uh, doing something. And my parent, my mom, sort of basically asked me point blank if I would come home to Connecticut so that if something bad were to happen in New York City, she would not lose all her children at once. She basically told me this, that she wanted to, to keep sort of the way that like, you know, the president, the vice president and like the speaker of the house should not really be in the same place at the same time, just in case. Uh, that was this was the sort of Blinky family uh, protocol that, that was in play. So I spent literally the, the moments uh, leading up to midnight. She was clutching my hand on the couch in fear that like we were going to witness live the the either destruction of New York City or just like everything was going to just go black or perhaps the television was going to explode. Uh, because nobody really knew what was going to happen. Uh, and the answer is that nothing. Dick Clark, who was still not only alive, but I believe pre-stroke at that point, uh, had nothing but but cheer and, and goodwill for all mankind. Um, my brother and sister both had an amazing time in New York. Um, and I, believe, I believe I ended up watching uh, From Russia with Love. Um, on, on, it, was, it was on late at night on the James Bond channel, uh, otherwise known as TNT. Um, 
They showed a lot of James Bond movies on TNT back in the back in the late nineties. Um, that's another thing we've lost is September eleventh. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I would have to say that that inadvertently, I, the, the the sort of demon of of uh, fear of of the unknown of, of fear that the next uh, second of the clock could sort of like be our last uh, was sort of ushered in at that moment. That's uh, yeah. We'll never forget the days before basic cable original programming. Yeah, I know. I I miss I miss yeah, it was like back when back when Netflix was um yeah, not 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 even I was I was going to say just like discs in the mail, but no, not even nothing. Well, we got those we got those uh basic cable channels in our college cable package, right? Old analog standard definition cable package that you could shell out 30 bucks a month for or something yeah. like that. So, uh yeah, there it was, was like a C-SPAN and like local public access. Right. But in my dorm room, yeah, there was a lot of like there was a lot of like Wimbledon, and, and there was a lot of like uh, How James much Wimbledon. Could there possibly have been? <laughs> I don't know. It seemed it seemed to go on all fall. It seemed to stretch from September to the following September. But maybe yeah, my it's uh, like the way that like the World Series of Poker actually takes place over like three days, but then when they stretch it out at ESPN, it goes it goes like eight months. Uh, I think there's someone eager to join the conversation. Next in the alphabet, drink, because it's Peter Fenzel. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Thanks. I just want to get to talking about Iron Man 3 because it's such an awesome movie. No, but, uh, I, got, I got like 20 minutes of plugs to do after this, so we're not going to oh, Okay. So we have, but as long as you have some time to talk about Wimbledon before we get into it, that's the important part. Uh, no, I know. I'm not, I'm not one to criticize for digressions, that's for sure. So, you know, the plank is in my eye. Um, so when I was approaching midnight in uh, Y2K land, uh, I, unlike Matt, was one of the only people in my family, probably the only person in my family who was scared. Uh, nobody else was scared. And I was at a big inter-family party where there were several large families gathered together uh, in, a fa- in another family's house. And nobody there was scared <laughs> except for me and one other person who was my friend's older sister. Uh, who was married and was there with her family. Uh, and she was scared, and I was scared. And so as the, uh, as the clock ticked down, and I don't think I was scared of the same broad proliferation of bad things as Matt's mom, but, but I, was, I, was, I was scared of some sort of unexpected cataclysm occurring. Um, I had also been working in tech recruiting around Y2K preparation for the previous few, uh, for like the previous summer. So I, I worked in like the industries that were preparing the various mainframes uh, to get the, uh, like the COBOL all fixed. So that had been my job. So I was a little bit familiar with what was going to happen and probably nothing, but still I was scared. And when the clock finally ticked down in the last three minutes, or three seconds, the last three, the whole last three minutes, I was just in a sheer panic. No, the last three seconds, I remember surrounded by this big throng of people and everybody is cheering and getting happy and counting down and I made eye contact with my friend's older sister and I felt like everything else in the room went dark and we just shared this moment of just abject horror right and it was just it was just like everything kind of tensed up and I immediately felt this just like in, in, intense intense feeling of horror and dread uh, and then it passed of course and nothing happened um, and I feel like if I created a demon, because that was when we talked before the show, that's what we said the question was going to be. What demon did you create on, uh, on the, uh, the moments before midnight uh, at the turn of the pseudo-millennium? Uh, it was the fact that I shared this moment of horror with someone that I have not seen since. And they probably go through their life also burdened with this moment of horror and fear, <laughs> that is, uh, which I did nothing to assuage. What? That, that is the worst losing your virginity story I have ever heard. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, especially because nobody got any. And <laughs> no, no, no. We we definitely it was intimate, but it was horrifying, and it was not it was not the sort of thing that one's established commitment should be worried about. But yeah, no, it was. Uh, I suppose I might have had the opportunity to ease this person's fear, and instead magnified and bounced it back to them, combined with my own. Uh, so if, if that ain't gonna create a supervillain, I don't know what is. Uh, I think Wimbledon, the uh, Grand Slam. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Lee next in the alphabet. Um, I have a confession to make. I've been hiding this a long time. Um, the demon that I created on New, uh, New Year's Eve 1999 was a uh, Russian president and now strongman Vladimir Putin. True story. Uh, I snuck away to uh, Russia during the holidays. Um, I orchestrated uh, Boris Yeltsin's surprise resignation on December 31st, 1999, which elevated then Prime Minister Vladimir Putin to the Russian presidency. And we all know how that turned out. How did it turn out? Not good. Uh, is, the no. jury isn't out. Is, okay, is still- l- listen, guys, I have no recollection at all as to what I was doing December 31st, 1999. I could have been at a raging party in New York City. Most likely, I was probably like sitting on the floor in Birmingham, Alabama, in the home where I was living at the time and watching it on TV. Um, but since I don't remember definitively, I'm going to have to go with the logical explanation that like, you know, I was uh, drugged by Russian agents and sent to Russia to help orchestrate this. Um, and now it's all coming back to me. So there you go. Wow. <laughs> that, is that why the last, when we were playing uh, We Fit at your place, you all of a sudden busted out those Spetsnaz martial arts moves? <laughs> like, I was about to say, are you the one coming- who... <laughs> Are you the one who sense. taught Vladimir Putin judo, right? And among other things, yeah. <laughs> and the ways of love. That's the worst <laughs> senior virginity story that I've uh, Did you teach him to play tennis in Wimbledon? The uh... <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm going to uh, keep humping this piano key. Uh, to, to, wow, that is a deep callback. All right, it's my turn. Um, it's a vivid image all of a sudden. Oh wait, we can do the uh we can uh we can do the um the thing actually in alphabetical order. No, we can't. Sorry, we thought we were going to have another podcaster, but there seems to be technical difficulties. So I will consi- I will uh continue on. Um so uh many of you know that I, I am involved in the theater, the performing arts. Um, theater, and I was since I was a very, uh, very young child. And actually, I started as kind of an absurdly young child writing uh, for theater and writing music, especially for for plays and musicals. And so, by the time I had gone to college, I had written two full scores and like 120, 130 like songs, musical theater songs or pieces of incidental music. Um, all on my little synthesizer and, uh, you know, 8086 um, computer uh, sequencing them and putting them together. And so uh, for New Year's Eve 2000, I was uh, on stage performing a cabaret um, with the theater that I, the company that I was involved uh, with from like 1992, 2002. performing a cabaret of some songs that I had written and some songs that uh, some of the other people associated with the theater had written. And so we, uh, we like were, and we had like changed all the lyrics to be funny um, New Year's Eve lyrics. So I was singing like kind of lame parody songs about Y2K uh, on a stage in front of, uh, you know, a hundred drunk 
septuagenarians because that was the theater-going audience that this theater appealed to at the time. So, uh, yes, I, I, uh, what? I, I guess had the whole thing come crashing down, I at least would have been um, fiddling while Rome burns. Well, we always need a little entertainment. Are you not entertained? You say that right as the as the lights go out and the planes crash and everything goes haywire. Um, all right, so uh, after the uh, uh, after all this, uh, out of order, but uh, because no order can contain him, Jordan Stokes is here. Jordan, what were you doing at the turn of the millennium? What demon did you create? Uh, I, well, I was. I created the Y2K computer phenomenon. It turned out to be a very containable demon. <laughs> Wait, you did that? That was you the whole time? Well, not me so much as a series of like totally meaningless petty pranks that I played, uh, spun out of control, causing it to happen. And later on, I had to take uh, full responsibility for all of the, the horrible grief and suffering and death caused by the Y2K computer phenomenon. So, you know, I'm doing all right. <laughs> Uh, so Iron Man, um, we'll get to Iron Man in a second, but first 20 minutes of plugs. The, uh, no, uh, we continue our, our, we continue our Eurovision series. We hope you're enjoying that. We sure like making those videos, um, putting out, uh, putting out a lot of videos. We've gone from, from like zero to 60 pretty quickly, uh, in terms of just producing a ton of video content very quickly. So, uh, go check those out, search for overthinking it on YouTube or follow any of the many, many links that we have in the, uh, posts on overthinking it to our YouTube page. And Hey, would it kill you to subscribe while you're over there? And, uh, also, here we are at the the uh, beginning of summer movie season. Uh, we didn't do our summer movie preview, which which may be all to the good, but um, you know we're we're uh, shaking up tradition a little bit. But uh, this is an important season coming up for the Overthinking It podcast. And you know what would be awesome is if you shared this podcast with a friend of yours, someone you know uh, who likes things that are awesome, um, who likes pop culture, who likes overthinking. Uh, you know, your smart fun friends, would you forward our show on to them? Would you send them an email and say, hey, I thought you might get a kick out of this. Here's a, uh, a bunch of people talking about Iron Man 3, and they're, uh, you know, we think what they have to say is pretty cool, and, you know, share that. We're uh, looking to, to grow our audience. We're always looking to expand. We want to kind of grow the group of friends that um, the global group of, of super friends, super overthinkers that uh, embrace this show. So um, from time to time, we ask you to, uh, you know, help out the show, and the thing that you can do most to help out right now is to share it with uh with someone you know would be into it so thanks for that Matt, you didn't tell us that you were gonna ask people to share this podcast now we have to make it good gosh little heads up here yeah sorry but no that's that's okay because we have some good material to go into uh iron man 3 uh manola dargis's worst movie of the year and this is a. Uh, <laughs> really? This really? is. Uh, she didn't like it. Uh, this is a good. Uh, this is as good a place to start as any, right? Because I think it'll give us all something to push against pretty hard. Um, <laughs> Manola- I told you that I didn't want to talk about Manola Gargas because I'm going to sound like a misogynist. We really, I just hate her. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
No, I don't. Or dargologist or something. (laughs) Dargologist, an anti-monologan or something like that. Oh, man. Dargo. Well, well, uh, Dargus Morgulis, I guess. But the... um... (laughs) This is going to be the rest of the podcast right here. It's just like making fun of Manola Dargus's name. Manola Doharis. So... um, what uh uh what she wrote was was essentially that the movie uh uses uh what the specter of terrorism, the kind of specter of post nine eleven uh, uh, American insecurity, brought into sharp relief by the recent Boston Marathon bombings. Though, of course, the filmmakers would have no way to know about any of that. But uh, but still, it's at the forefront of the national consciousness, and that the the it sort of uses it in a cheap way, right? Um, uh, and 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 of course that's crap. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but Pete, do you do, do you want to to say why this is crap? I thought that this was a movie that actually had some some interesting things to say about some pretty deep deep subjects. Uh, yeah. But you know, I do, do you agree, Pete? I mean, I mean, I agree with the sense that it definitely had a lot to say and was pretty deep about stuff. I mean, there's. I think I'd be curious to hear what everybody heard about this because I, my own reaction to it intellectually was very colored by my personal experience. So I'm sort of self conscious about the fact that a lot of what I thought about Iron Man three is going to also be sort of what I think about myself in the context of Iron Man three. Uh, it's it's a quite it's a movie that sort of poses questions to you about your own idea of yourself because it's about ideas of self and it's mostly about ideas of how you cope with things that are bad that happen in your life right and also um, i think also i think how you cope with the idea of of trying to improve yourself or trying to make your life better like what what yeah. is the path to to sort of self-improvement because there are sort of two between the like between um guy pierce and robert downey jr there's sort of two paths right towards uh towards self-improvement and one emerges victorious in in the movie and it's it sort of i don't know i sort of wonder what we what we think about that yeah yeah um, yeah, I mean, the, the, first, the place that I start also thinking about it, because this sort of, I didn't, this didn't really hit me until after the movie was over, uh, but sort of, if you want to think about how deep this movie goes with the legacy of terrorism, remember that the chief henchmen of the bad guy in this movie are American soldiers who are, have their limbs blown off by IEDs in Iraq, for the most part, right? Who then are so traumatized by the experience of having to cope with being amputees, that they then join this organization in the hopes of getting a cure, are then hooked on an addictive drug, right, and are, and are in this despair and addictive state, uh, end up either accidentally, generally accidentally blowing up places they care about, right? Like, we hear that there's a place, there's like a, a home, there's like a, a, a home where the women and children on a military base are staying, and there's been an explosion there that's killed all of them. Now, we saw one of these explosions. The person blowing up doesn't know that they're the one who's blowing up. Right, like they just know that they're despairing and they're sad, and they they need this drug uh, that they've become addicted to in their traumatic experience. And the guy gives them the syringe, and it overdoses them on the the extremists, and they explode and they kill everybody. So if that doesn't sort of tell you a little bit about the emotional scarring of September 11th and the ways in which it simultaneously, or at least symbolically, might further violence or you know call upon us to to try to find some sort of way of breaking the psychological cycle of pain. You know, I don't know what would. Uh, I mean, did, I mean, what do you do? You guys think about this whole? I mean, even the even if you want to start more sort of high level about Iron Man versus Guy Pierce. What's Guy Pierce's name in this movie again? 
Um, Aldrich. Anyone remember? Killian. Aldrich. Killian. Killian. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. The That's like a Sith name right there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, because well, what? Because, I mean, if nobody wants to jump in and kind of, exp- like, unpack Killian a little bit, right? Well, like, yeah. his superpower is that he was bitten by a radioactive 1980s and took on all of the powers of the 1980s, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Especially since this was directed and written by the guy who wrote Lethal Weapon. I right? know. <laughs> yeah. All over it. Like, all the frig over it. All the way to, like, the dragon tattoos on his chest. Yeah. yeah Can we yeah. just agree right now that any movie where Guy Pierce has a tattooed torso is an awesome movie? <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, it it really like right about when um the the like the buddy cops one black one white um one of them who is actually a detective and one of whom is sort of a free agent and cracks wise a lot started doing the sort of crouched over with a pistol run on an oil rig I was like wait a minute wait a minute and then Guy Pierce's shirt came off and I like I almost like spat soda all over the road in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> I I have genetically engineered regenerative capabilities. They've just been revoked. <laughs> there you go. Um, oh, I mean, here's but here's the thing. Like this movie, I think uh, expands on the themes of the previous movie, which is sort of the military-industrial complex about this uncomfortable interplay between the big business of making weapons and then sort of like to what extent are you sort of wishing for disaster and chaos in the real world just to just to build up your business i mean i'm i'm pretty sure that uh, that sam rockwell was sort of in a similar uh position in the in the last movie where he 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 sort of wanted to uh, create a threat, encourage a threat, so that like he could get these lucrative contracts from the U.S. government. This one makes it even even more clear that like all of uh, you know the, the reason why you need to create a terrorist, literally order a terrorist from central casting, is because then it's like everybody will have no choice but to turn to your company and your advanced technology to sort of uh, you know tr- try to try to assuage that that fear of that the boogeyman. Mm. Uh, Take a moment to to suss out Guy Pierce's uh, Aldrich's um, his end game, like his big master plan, right? Because he's got the Mandarin, he's got these extremist guys that are um, you know blowing themselves up, and you know he's using the Mandarin to cover those up as or portray them as terrorist attacks. So he wants to sell extremists to the United States government. Is that basically it? Yeah, Yeah. and, and and the United States government will want to buy extremists. Because it'll like heal their wounded soldiers, or because it'll make super soldiers that will then be able to hunt terrorists. Well, the, the, uh, well, the vice main, president, okay. yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, the, it's the thing. It's a personal. Also, motive. that yeah. Also, the vice president wants extremists out there to. to um, but he's the. I mean, he's the inside man, right? Like that. That is sort of from within. From within the White House is you know opening doors and and you know smoothing the way for this to take place. Yeah, I mean, th- oh, so good. No, he does say literally at one point that this will stimulate demand for for you and your brothers and sisters to uh, to his henchmen, which means that basically this is you know it's a giant government intervention to stimulate demand. So his his evil plan is basically Keynesian, right? <laughs> uh, no, wait, 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 wait. So is the evil plan to like give the extremists to the United States government so that 
um, it will create super soldiers? Or is the idea that, like, you know, it will, like, continue to create war so that people will, you know, continue to get their limbs blown off by IEDs so that then that he can sell the extremists well, then to repair the Here's limbs. the thing, is he has the extremists, right? Like, Guy Pierce has the extremists, and he got the extremists before he knew what to do with it. Right, so he has the extremists, and the end game is kind of evolving in real time as his ability to work on the extremists like improves or declines. And his goal is to put himself in a position where he has a lot of power and he has a lot of money and he's very influential. So yeah. I don't think that Guy Pierce cares about whether or not there are extremist super soldiers in the U.S. Army. He refers to the vice president as his patron, right? So it's like he has a political patron, and the only purpose that the old president served was as his political patron to kind of get him involved in the thing. But the thing about Guy Pierce's plot that I love is he has the woman from the town, again, whose name I forget, uh, and whose name in the movie I forget, who tells him really flat out, like, you don't have to do this. Like, this plan, we can just, we can do your evil plan, but not evil, right? Like, we can make the extremists, we can sell it to the U.S. government, we can get lucrative contracts. All we have to do is partner with this other corporation and this other guy who knows how to make the formula stable so that we don't have to make bombs, right? So that we can make something that's more stable that would be marketable as a pharmaceutical. And Guy Pierce is not willing to do that because of the personal wound that has been affected to him by, by Robert Downey Jr.'s neglect for him in a moment where he really needed him. And I feel like that's really the important part of Guy Pierce's plan is that he reached out to Robert Downey Jr. at a time when he was really vulnerable and Robert Downey Jr. hurt him pretty bad, right? Like, and didn't mean to. It was totally by accident. Like, he was being a dick, but he, he didn't remember. mean to. He didn't right. mean to, but he didn't mean to cause this much problems, right? He, right. he didn't even think about it. It didn't matter to him. But yeah. instead, he, he, he gave this guy's life this tremendous amount of desperation is how he refers to it. And this desperation has driven him to choose this much more convoluted and probably inferior path to the same goal of being an influential military contractor, right? Like, and, and I feel like that's what makes this – one of the big things that makes this movie better than Iron Man 2 where it's not just like, oh, I need to do the evil things because then I will be rich and have evil things. It's like the option of being rich is always there and it's just a matter of what path he's going to take to get there. And the, re- and the choices he makes as to what path he's going to follow are meaningful for what the story is about and resonate with the other plot lines of the story. At the risk of being a spoil sport, can I ask, like, what, what is Robert Downey Jr.'s moral obligation to Guy Pierce? you know, as an annoying guy who, like, elbows his way into an elevator while he's trying to go upstairs and, and uh, you know, get laid with uh, a botanist, right? Moral obligation, at the very least, is to just, like, directly blow him off and directly say no rather than to lead him on with that line. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, that's that was, really about it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, would dis- I would disagree. I'd say he has no moral obligation. Right. I would say he has no moral obligation to this guy, um, and I would say that the movie, er, that there's a number of characters in the movie who have all suffered some sort of wound to themselves, and the movie is all about as moving on and healing from these wounds, right? These wounds become these demons. He says in the epilogue, you create your own demons, but really the demons are emerge from you're recovering from or dealing with some sort of thing that someone else has done to you or chance has done to you, right? Whether it's your dad leaving or whatever. Um, and so it's, the point is not why it happened to you. 
You know, that, that's, everybody has these things happen to them. It's part of the human condition. And I feel like that's a really important part of this movie is that like it, it, it's it, – sometimes things happen to you that create these horrible experiences and it's, no, and it's nobody's fault. Nobody shirked it on you. You know, like nobody did it just to be – because if you, if you insist that it's somebody's fault, if you insist that there was a mistake that Robert Downey Jr. did, well, then like we can just sort of say, well, in the real world, we should just try not to make that mistake and then we don't have to deal with that problem. Whereas the point of this movie is that you have to deal with this problem. You don't have the option of not making these mistakes. These mistakes will happen, right? Like, um, and, and, that's, and that's, that's life is, is moving on from them um, or figuring out how to move on. Right. Or, or maybe, I mean, it's not so much that it is nobody's fault because, you know, Robert Downey Jr. did do that. But that um, as the position of the wounded party, like the fact that it's someone else's fault is sort of immaterial. You still have yeah. a moral choice to make about how you're going to handle it. Right. Right, 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 and that uh, that it's, so Robert Downey Jr. is responsible, but doesn't have moral responsibility. Which, again, reading it back into you know various debates around various things going on with terrorism is an interesting little wrinkle to uh, to iron out there. Exactly, exactly. Like, it did foreign policy in the Middle East cause terrorism, you know, like, to an extent, yes, but at the same time, there's still a degree to which if you're the person who has to decide whether to blow up uh, a square full of innocent people, am I going to do that or not? Right? Like, uh, and I mean, I, living in Boston during the Boston bombings, this feels very relevant. It doesn't feel like it cheapens it. You know, like, these guys didn't have to do this thing, you know, and they did, and they chose to do it. And clearly, they were wounded by a lot of people, you know, their dad was gone, their mom is crazy, you know, like, the guy is dropping out of community college. He doesn't know what to do with himself. Like, there's a lot of bad things that happen to make these people upset. And 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 I think Iron Man three is is posing the human dilemma that those guys also had to deal with, which was like, how do you choose to deal with the fact that you've been wounded? Um, yeah. And that and then terrorism is one of the responses to that. So obviously, there's uh, there. We said earlier there's two ways to deal with wounds, right? The the Robert Downey Jr. way and the Guy Pierce way. And obviously, there's sort of a a morally good way and a morally bad way. But I'm curious whether in the sort of in terms of their wounds, is there a difference between the way that they handle it? In terms of their what? Physical wounds. Oh, um, in terms of how they deal with like them being like physically injured in that oh, Robert Downey well, Jr. Oh, go ahead. No, I think I think the the very ending is is very interesting. Where Robert Downey Jr. realizes, you know what? I don't need to have the glowing orb in my chest. I choose to keep that there because it says something about me. Because it makes me feel powerful. I mean, I think I think what the movie is about, in in to a large extent, is the sort of way we react to feeling unsafe, the way we react to feeling that the world is a dangerous place, and that we are constantly. In Pearl, and in Robert Downey Jr.'s cases, he's trying to build, he's trying to enshrine himself in technology, not just to surround himself in armor, but to put it in his body. And I think it's very key at the end of the movie, where where you know, and it, it seems in the first Iron Man movie that like, well, he's been wounded, he's literally wounded in attack, and he has fixed himself, he has improved himself, and and used this technology to to um to to solve the problem. But really, what it says at the end of this movie is that like, you know what, I. When I yeah, like like maybe the electromagnet was a short term solution, but when I got back to the United States, I could have had a doctor fix that, <laughs> and that I could have I could have really healed myself back to the way I was before, or at least uh, a more a more permanent sort of less baroque solution, and I yeah, so so I think that like. It, 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 the, the final sort of step it takes at the end of this movie. And I think one thing that we should talk about is how this sort of, whether or not there is an Iron Man 4, this does seem to kind of bring the Iron Man story full circle. 
um, in that like he realizes that he doesn't need that the 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 electromagnet in his chest the thing that the thing that you you know you think makes him iron man is that he has this big glowing thing in his chest he does he realizes that that's not what makes him iron man and that even without any of the technology even when you strip that away he he still he still is that person oh yeah um, you must discover the iron man within <laughs> right. Uh. So that that like the the Iron Man solution, the 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 sort of old Iron Man solution to the wound is like I'm going to fix this and I'm going to build technology that will solve the problem and that will like that will that will repair the you know you think about Iron Man two where he's being poisoned by this thing in his chest and his solution is to I'm going to invent a new element a new uh, literally something new on the periodic table but this movie implies really the simple solution is like maybe I don't need that thing in my chest anymore yeah. and it never even occurred to him because like his old solution is like I'm just going to build something bigger and more complicated yeah I mean to expand on what you said I think another really important parallel to this is because when you say the movie is about what it is like to feel like you're in peril all the time and how do you deal with that and Iron Man is, in, is constantly fighting off these different kinds of peril one of the really powerful subplots in the movie I think is that because is, is Iron Man also always feels like his relationship with Pepper is in peril right he always feels like there's always this this sense around that she she might leave him that he's going to push her away right that like uh the 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 bodyguard is always reminding him right that like this guy could take her away and maybe he's confident about it maybe he isn't maybe he's kind of keeping her at arm's reach but uh, i really identified with with this sort of uh this as cuz what happens at the very end of the climactic fight is that um at this point pepper has fallen right because uh, Robert Downey Jr. wasn't didn't have a long enough arm, wasn't strong enough, wasn't fast enough. He promised he'd catch her and then could not follow through. Exactly. And so he failed. And he thinks that because he failed, she's gone. And then at the very end of the fight, she reveals that she's not gone. That just because he failed, she's still there. And that's what relationships are like when you're an adult and you love somebody. Is it right? Is that like you have this fear sometimes that the next time that you screw up, this person who is so core to who you are is just going to leave. And there's this fear that can exist. And maybe you guys have experienced this, and maybe I'm just revealing a certain vulnerability in myself here. But it's like there's this fear that what if I'm not good enough for the person that I care about or who cares about me? What if I'm not worthy of their care about me? And then it's like you're always working on it and working on it and trying to fix it. And there's this revelation that can come when you realize that you know yes you can screw up uh but if the relationship is there that needs to be there in the way that it matters they can still be around for you and when you talk about healing like that's healing right like if you think about like couples therapy or you think about like how how you to how to recover from like an infidelity in a marriage right it's like it's to realize okay like do we still want to be here after this thing that's happened and do we want to recover together right and and i think it's really important that it's it's pepper potts not uh tony stark who finally defeats the the sort of evil guy who by the way is injected and i love this about it is that like the drug comes from one of literally comes from one of tony's one night stands and is a drug that temporarily heals you but threatens to destroy you with an explosion 
right? So it's like a short-term fix. Like, he meets a girl in Switzerland on New Year's Eve who gives him a short-term fix that can heal anything, but if he keeps taking it, he could possibly explode and die, right? And so he, he ends up sort of uh, surpassing that, replacing that with a more meaningful relationship. And I think that that's in parallel with him dealing with the heart in his chest, the heart issue, the wounds that he suffered from his traumatization in Afghanistan. I think it all comes together and is, is kind of bound yeah. up with each other. Does and it, it's also I mean, connected to the kid, but yeah. Because there are like three, there are three levels. There's the like a comic book logic story level about the the kind of manifest content of the the movie there's a what a relationship or kind of interpersonal allegory level and then there's there's kind of a political uh you know global terrorism allegory level right and that, uh, it does it all uh, does it all sort of line up i mean and i'm thinking of i'm i'm thinking of um is this is this a good analogy? Is I guess is what I'm asking. Like, so, someone someone feels bad. Like something bad happens, right? Like one guy goes to the gym and the other guy buys nice nicer clothes, right? Is is that the kind of split that that we're talking about here? Is that the is that more or less the the dichotomy that's being explored in this? Because if uh, if it is, then like doesn't Killian have the the right answer? Well, this is what I think is actually super interesting, because on the one hand, um, Killian is bodily and Tony Stark is technology. Right. right? So you're seeing the, um, the avatar split, except that Tony Stark's technology never works like technology actually works in the world. Right. Like he's the sort of the image of the solo inventor in the lab is actually a lot more akin to an artist. Um, and you get the feeling that the Iron Man suits are something that come organically out of who he is. Um, so although the, despite the fact that he's the giant robot, his thing is the sort of organic human way to fix your, your bodily impairments. Whereas um, the, the other one is shown to be actual science that proceeds through like clinical trials and getting funding and hiring other scientists and whatnot. So it actually is a technological thing, although it's, uh, you know, biotech rather than robot tech. Um, so there, there's this weird, like, reversal that, uh, that Tony Stark is not a scientist in this. Like, he, he made it himself, therefore it is part of him. So he is... Um, which is, why, that, which is yeah. why Don Cheadle can't wear his suits because they're tuned, you know, they're tuned to him and only War Machine is tuned to, right. to Don Cheadle. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think that that's really interesting and, like, I, and that's, I, I think that that's, exa- that's exactly it. And that's, that's kind of the direction I wanted to gesture and I think that's the, the reversal that's at the heart of this story and like I think the amount of time he spends kind of like Hamlet looking at the skull right like contemplating the Iron Man face mask uh, right? the, the number of shots that's like Robert Downey Jr. looking directly at an Iron Man head in this movie is you know I don't know something about like will and representation or something about like uh, you know self versus persona right like inner inner self versus versus persona and I think you're exactly right to peg it as like this is the uh this is the this is the artistic model um except that it's not a it's not a mature art right like it's it's sort of seen as kind of playing playing with toys or um or being being actually more appropriate to the to the what the the 11 year old kid kind of uh having fun in his garage I mean, I think there's, it's, it's, there's yeah. an early scene that goes along with exactly what you said, where he sends the suit on a date for him, <laughs> which is like, and it, it really doesn't make, if you think about it, because it's like, how long did he expect that to work? 
like exactly how is he going to make that switch? But it is, I mean, it's very, and, and this is a movie in which on numerous points you think he's in the suit and he's not in the suit or that the suit uh, can operate independently of him or he has a bunch of suits that have minds of their own. And you really get the feeling by the end that like he doesn't really need to be Iron Man anymore because like the suits are doing just fine. Um, so, so this you know, is, could, could save the day without him. This is interesting. We should probably pivot away from this um, and talk about the Mandarin a little bit. But the the uh, but I I I wonder if there's anything interesting to say about the Iron Man suits and drone warfare. Right. Like the idea that we actually don't need people doing a lot of this stuff anymore. Right. Like we can outsource to a uh, right to a slave class of robots. Right. Um, The the, uh, actual business, the ugly business of war fighting. Um, Let me just point something out that in Iron Man 2, drones were. Uh, specifically portrayed as evil. There's this whole thing right. where uh, the army wanted a bunch of soldiers in suits, and the Mickey Rourke character is like, "Drone, drone is better. I make drone, drone is." And everyone was very skeptical about. It. And then, of course, the drones are are become the, the puppets of evil, and it becomes this sort of thing where, like, the guy in the suit is good, the robots that sort of operates with a mind of their own, and like, you know, don't uh, don't have like a person in them, a person with you know morals and ethics who can, you know, there, there's a scene where. A drone, I think, is about to kill a little kid because the little kid is wearing an Iron Man mask, and that, and, and it's sort of this this fear that the the drones cannot be trusted with this power. Well, let's not um, in this movie, this movie turns it around. No, it works both ways in this movie, though, right? Because the drones, the autonomous drones, come in and they save the day. You know, there's like a dozen of them, and they're all coordinating their attack against the extremist guys. But at the end, the drone comes after Pepper Potts because the, pep- uh, the drone can't distinguish between you know like a good extremist person and bad extremist person, and then. Pepper Potts yeah. very definitively destroys the armor. Um, There's a moment in Frankenstein uh, with um, who is Frankenstein? Boris Karloff, right? Where uh, Frankenstein kind of trudges out, the Frankenstein monster rather trudges out, right? And there's a girl throwing uh, flowers into the river and enjoying this. And Frankenstein's like, oh, this is a rod, this is awesome, and starts throwing flowers into the river. And so um, the, uh, and, and then like picks up the girl and throws her into the river because if throwing one form of life into the river is cool, throwing this other form of life into the river must also be cool. So this is like, like this is something that like for a long time has been kind of embedded in our fear of technology that it doesn't have the the uh, power of discernment right that yeah. that w- that we possess but also the, that that echo, right? The sort of bookended scenes of the the robot of the Iron the empty Iron Man suit coming after Pepper while they're sleeping, and Robert Downey Jr. is having a nightmare, mm-hmm. and then uh, Gwyneth Paltrow having to destroy the Iron Man suit at the end is really more about like the misdirected anger in relationships, where like you know where, where Robert Downey Jr. is suffering from this traumatic experience and he's having anxiety attacks, and it starts spilling over and threatening her physically and personally and really scaring her, right? And so it starts driving her away and at the end what does she do but she breaks through his armor right like she man that's like again that's like that's how i saw that's the reading i saw of that scene i'm sure it admits to other readings to other sorts of uh of other sorts of aspects but even to go on about the drone thing though one scene that i think we need to mention in terms of drone warfare is the scene where where uh, war patriot or whatever his name is (laughs) goes to the goes to the pakistani garment manufacturing plant right and he like he's like he's like searching to try to find where the mandarin is coming from i mean that is very obviously drone warfare right they're like the the signal can be what? 
Well, no, with the big difference, if it were really drone warfare, they would have just blown up. The, you know, <laughs> the fact that he walks in and he looks at the situation, and then yeah. he's like, "Okay, my mistake. I'm not. I'm not going to do anything here because obviously we got some bad intel." Whereas yeah. the real drone warfare is like, we, all we can do is is blow stuff up. We can't actually send a person with discernment. Yeah, the location. Yeah. So that that right. So the Iron Patriot is is a, a new and improved drone because he has this. But of course, he makes a mistake, right? He should have blown up the factory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is that like he's? It's it sort of shows the problem. It doesn't offer a good solution to drone warfare, but it shows the kind of haplessness of it, right? Like, and it's not just drone warfare, but also just like tracking people down in the war on terror, right? Trying to fight individuals with like large global infrastructures of of air to, air to ground bombardment. Um, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so I don't know. I guess I guess it doesn't really come up. Does it come up with a solution for how to deal with the issues around drone warfare? I think it points to it and resonates with it a bunch of times, but doesn't uh, doesn't sort of close the book. Yeah, sure. I it's mean, in, well, fair enough. Because, I mean, um, and that's why Manola Dargis doesn't like the movie, right? Because it doesn't like yeah. offer any like tangible, you know, political proposals for. So, or <laughs> let, let, let me jump in here and, and bring us back to the Mandarin and, and say Thank that you. the movie actually sort of is offering a solution. It is not a very specific one, but the answer is basically like regime change starts at home you know find the enemy within and root out the root out like think about our our, our problems here and, and that is not going to solve the problem of global terrorism but you know it, it it's a step in the right direction and it's like the sense that we're ignoring things here now so hear me out on this um the movie starts out with the mandarin like everybody thinks that the mandarin is the terrorist right he is a muslim terrorist in uh, in in every way except he's not explicitly you know it's not explicitly said that he's a muslim terrorist right you see like arabic writing on the thing he looks like osama bin laden and he does an execution on camera all this stuff you're right um and then you know there's this 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 big reversal reveal that the mandarin is uh just a totally manufactured terrorist and that the real bad guy is uh guy pierce or aldridge right with his extremists um, and this might be too simple reading, but I want to just put this out there, right? That um, part of the message of that is that um, we are too quick to, you know, find the Muslim um, boogeyman, the bad man out there, and and just assume that it's a bearded Muslim guy, you know, who's who's causing terrorist attacks, and you know, so we send Iron Patriot over to Pakistan to find the yeah. uh, to, to find the terrorist stuff. When in reality. You know, it's it's uh, it's the the problem is our industrial military uh, complex. Yeah. Um, like Jar- and- Jarvis says that the guys in Miami and and Tony Stark is like, we got to get you reprogrammed. That's clearly a mistake. Yeah. Oh, and so the last thing that that that, that uh, leads me to believe that the movie is, is, is trying to get us to think domestically is um, it's a little bit of a throwaway at the end. But when uh, Aldrich says basically that, hey, Mr. President, you know, this oil tanker spilled billions of of of. Of barrels of oil and nobody ever paid for that and so i'm mad at that and so like i'm going to use that you know as as excuse to to kill you essentially yeah, um, that's, and- a, that's actually really interesting mark and can, let's zoom out ahead, on man. that on that point because uh i don't know when where, where you saw it but there were trailers for when i saw it for um Oh God! What is it called? Now you see me, or something like that. The Jesse Jesse Eisenberg uh, kind of magic uh, Robin Hood kind of movie, where they they rob from the banks and give to the poor. And then also something called something something East that I had not heard about before this, or We Are East, or 
this is the East or something, which is a, uh, corporate terrorism movie or a corporate, you know, ad busters style, right. Anti-corporate Greenpeace attacks sort of movie. And it seems like this, you know, and, and then to see it in the, in the feature presentation also, this, this sort of, um, Right. This and I, ironically, it's the big corporation selling us this populist, anti-corporate themed entertainment. But like this, this seems like we've we've gone to a tipping point, and this is something gone gone past a tipping point, and this is something that's unique about this summer's movie season. Is is that it's like you know I don't know it's open season on. Uh, on this kind of very cynical and very kind of glib view of of hypocrisy, right, as a justification for, I don't know, super villainy or or blowing things up, right? Uh, so okay, so it's a glib view on. I'm trying to, to unpack exactly who's being indicted. So, so when, when we're talking about um, the Mandarin and so the and he's ta- he's coming up with these he's saying these justifications uh, for why they're doing the things, but it's of course not why they're doing the things, right? Uh, it's not why the bomb the bombings are happening. It has nothing to do with the goal of what it's trying to accomplish. So Guy Pierce is is narrativizing these attacks uh, because they play well on TV and they react with people, right? Uh, and so when you say it's, it's a glib, I'm trying to figure out who you're saying is being glib. Is it that people who are out there in the streets and are saying and are, and are calling out like that there have been these various crimes? Like, does Iron Man introduce a certain skepticism of people who sound the alarm against uh, our corporate overlords because we have to look at who their agendas are as well? And we should consider also primarily that these things are being said and listened to because of how they affect us rather than necessarily where they come from? Uh, and then there's a sort of a disconnect between the, the the source of the message and the reception of the message. That it's sort of a consumer-oriented political culture, where you find out what the consumer wants politically, and you give the consumer the political message that they want here, right? Right. And I think uh, I think the glib thing. I mean, and that's that's kind of what's happening within the plot of uh, like diegetically within Iron Man three. Yeah. I, I I also want to zoom out a level and kind of consider the level at which there are a bunch of sort of multi national conglomerates, right, as movie studios have been kind of acquired by bigger and bigger and more and more diversified, uh, you know, business concerns, right, Um, where uh, these sort of large entities are, you know, selling a product that uh, interacts with our own feelings or a kind of sense in the air right now about about populism and about uh, business greed, you know, or about the complicity of government in you know certain kinds of uh, corporate malfeasance and 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 stuff, uh, you know, stuff like that, right? That, that 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 is the that is the part of it that I think is is glib, right? Like if populism is selling, then then the multinational corporations are are going to line up to sell you populism if that's what you're going to buy. Right, 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 and the, the the way that these messages work, there isn't a necess- necessary, and that the big that's the big reveal of this movie is that there is not a necessary link between the the way in which the message is perceived and the motivations in with which the message is delivered. Right, right, that they could be totally disjointed from one another, and you know this is like truthiness and sincerity. Um, yeah, totally. I, I mean, I, I think, and I think that 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 also, I think, is something we've encountered, right? And we've encountered on a bunch of levels, and it's caused problem, problems in our political process. I think it's frustrated our attempts to, if people want them, even regardless of what side you're on, right? So if you're, let's let's sort of 
puristically divide people up into those who want to respond to corruption and with a populist bent and those who want to resist it because they see it as unnecessarily alarmist, right? Like whichever side you're on, um, uh, I feel like uh, – oh, gosh. I mean it's just it's, – it I feel like you can be disappointed with what's happened. Right, because it's like people keep fishing for the message that will connect, and by the time they find a message that will connect, they're so far away from any sort of meaningful gear-to-gear interaction that actually changes things in the direction you want them to go in. That that the you know the tugboat that you threw your line to isn't pulling you where you want to go anymore, right? Like, um, and, and it's like we want our movement to succeed so much that we uh, we we lose we we lose track of the agenda of the things that we might want to accomplish, uh, whether the movement is around in a year or not. Right, like um, that sort of thing. I don't know. It's it's tough. It's and I, it's and it, are people really are people responding because they really want these things? Are people responding to the messages of the Mandarin because they really are scared of Osama bin Laden? Right, or is it because they it, it, because this thing happening in the present and the future is something that they're interested in, or is it really just a repetition of trauma? Like, are they responding to it because it's something they've been hurt by before, and thus they have like an emotional connection to it? I don't sure. know. No, um, there, there's something. I mean, keeping with the idea of the Mandarin, right? Like there, there's the idea that he's connected with with Middle Eastern terrorism um, because of the iconography around him and and the way he looks and the you know all all this stuff. But he's called the Mandarin, right? Like it's it's connected with with China, right? Which is you know I don't know a source of kind of economic anxiety in the in the United States, right? Like in a source of um, maybe also even like military or sort of security related anxiety uh, within the United States with their sort of ascendancy. As a as a as a global superpower, yeah. and, even and he's though- attacking our fortune cookies, man, Chinese theater. So it's this sort of cultural warfare, like you know, revenge against the United States for like our sort of assumption and exploitation of uh, of China, right. And it's, well, sure, right, uh, of sort of Asian culture, you know, as a kind of, as the sort of global, uh, as the sort of like totalizing monolithic thing that we know that it isn't actually, but that it can kind of come across as in... um I, I ate, you know what, actually, after I went to see Iron Man 3, I went to a Thai restaurant and had, uh, you know, Korean short ribs and, uh, you know, Chinese wonton soup in a Thai restaurant, right? And, the, you know, this is how America views uh, East Asia. So this is a, you know, this is the thing, like the, the, the Mandarin... Uh, is is an identity that's that's sort of they don't really I don't know capitalize on in the movie, but the, but then at the level of the at the level of the the production of this movie, this is a business venture, not a not a Chinese co-production, you know, in the way that it it sort of allows you to escape the Chinese movie quota system, and you know you can read more about that elsewhere. But like uh, it's a it's a business venture between uh, like a Chinese. Uh, film financing company and it and you know Marvel Studios, which is Disney, right? Like this is a, a sort of multinational uh, thing, and there's a whole yeah. thing about uh, there. There's actually Chinese specific content that's only going to be seen in the Chinese cut of this movie or by anyone with an internet connection. You know, who's willing to <laughs> do we do we have any speculation as to what that might be? Because yeah. I'm not really seeing. Yeah, go, I, I've it? heard it's it involves cameos of famous. Chinese uh, celebrities and and, and uh, I, I at least heard on the radio uh, a product placement of like a Chinese energy drink or something. Oh, wow. So yeah. So so and I, I want to acknowledge as we're talking about the Mandarin because I've talked on this podcast about 
how absurd it was that they were going to put the Mandarin <laughs> right, in an right. Iron Man movie. Because the actual Marvel Comics Mandarin is the most dated superhero villain, like, I mean, they've they've done some things over the years in the comic books to make him more current, but he is like the yellow menace. Like, he is Orientalism in the extreme. He's like Ming the Merciless with his Fu Manchu, right? And his mystical rings. Um, and I think that it's important, the through line, the connection between the old Mandarin and the new Mandarin is Orientalism, right? right? And, and the sort of trend in Western culture of Orientalism doesn't really distinguish clearly between the sort of Far East, like East Asia, and the Middle East, right? It's like there's certain cultural tropes that pass along through the thousands of years about how the West feels about the East, right? And the East is the place of, like, the monarchs, and it's the place of the opulent, and the opulent and the servile, right? Like, the dominant and the willless and and gold embroidered robes and all this other uh, stuff that makes us feel threatened in our independence and our freedom, right? And so, and Orientalism is a big part of how the war and terror is like exoticized, right? And it's about a lot of big part of of how uh, it's all justified culturally. And when when Guy Pierce is sitting there and is like, "I'm the Mandarin," and he's got the dragon tattoos all over himself, right? Like, and he's sort of like he has transposed himself into the this sort of the master of this sort of Orientalist uh, narrative, this sort of in opposition to the West narrative that the West has created looking for sort of a mirror, like sort of a a narcissistic mirror for itself. Um, And I mean, I think it was really interesting that this whole style of discourse is so sharply indicted by being portrayed as not only a fraud, but like a, a, like, like a foppish theatrical fraud where the people doing it don't even know they're doing anything wrong. And they're absurd, right? Like, like it literally. Like, I love that it ends with a Sunset Boulevard moment. That the Mandarin story ends with Norma Desmond, right? Like, not with, not with, yeah, where he's like yeah, walking to the right, cops. Yeah, I'm ready for my close-up, yeah. uh, Mr. Black. He's exactly. delighted, right? He doesn't yeah. even, even he doesn't understand how much trouble he's in. I'm actually wondering: Does he understand that he shot a guy in the head in a, in a live broadcast, or did he think that that was an extra? Yeah, but maybe if it you, was. Maybe it actually was an extra, right? Yeah. Like, if you if you watch the sort of closing credit scene very, very, very closely, there's a shot of that guy getting back up off the floor as Ben Kingsley stands over him with a handgun. So it was apparently an extra. So that isn't actually a famous oil executive. Is it? Couldn't CNN figure that one out? No, it was he was an account. I mean, he was an accountant. Oh, I mean, he's you know account, how many right. okay. hundreds of accountants those large companies must employ. Yeah, all right. So he's he's straight out of central casting. <laughs> yeah, he's a white guy in a suit. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I would um, I would I would question Pete your your contention that the Mandarin is the most ridiculous dated Orientalist <laughs> villain in the comics. Uh-oh. Check out the original Egg Fu. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and cower in terror. <laughs> no, I know he's not the worst that there ever was, but I'm wonder. I, he's like he stayed very bad for very long. But let me look at Egg Fu. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, oh uh, my goodness! Let's pivot over to Belinky, who has who has some stuff that he wants to say about uh, uh, discourses of feminism and the the Iron Man three story. Really briefly, I mean, I think we've seen a lot of superhero movies. We're going to see a lot more superhero movies. The damsel in distress thing has been done to death. And I think most notably, I really enjoyed all three of the, the, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy, even the third one, which gets a lot of, lot of uh, flack 
Um, but really, they, they, they did the sort of Mary Jane is and Pearl thing to death. In all three movies, she is captured by the bad guy and is dangling from something high in the air, screaming at the top of her lungs. And this happens again and again in, in uh, superhero movies. Certainly happened in Iron Man 1, where, where uh, Jeff Bridges, the dude, is, is threatening Gwyneth um, and is subverted. Uh, well, uh, I, I think it, in a way that I enjoyed in this movie where she is, in fact, uh, dangling from something high, uh, she does fall and then she uh, pulls herself out of the wreckage and personally defeats the bad guy when, when Robert Downey Jr. is sort of disarmed and unable to defend himself. Uh, and she proves to be p- potentially even stronger than he is. Although I think uh, this is then, you know, it's, it's, I'm hesitant to say uh, full out that this is 100% uh, feminist approved because of a few things. Number one, I get the feeling that it was all just an excuse to have her in the sports bra. Constantly <laughs> close, sort of writhing around in the in the restraints. Uh, number two, I th- I do think it's suspect that because what what I kind of saw uh, going forward is that like maybe she could have superpowers too in the next one, and they they really quickly on uh, make it clear that like she's back to normal. Uh, any any superhuman uh, kung fu fighting abilities that she had are negated by Tony himself uh, at her request. Uh, she doesn't she doesn't feel empowered by that. Now I know it was dangerous, but I was curious. Like I almost expected them to be like, and then I figured out the way to make it safe, and now she has these powers, but she's not going to explode. But instead, it's like I restored her to to her regular state. Which I mean, but also like you know that goes along with the way that like he took the electromagnet out of his chest. That like you know he 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 got away from this idea that like you need this technology to feel secure or to be able to cope with a dangerous world. World. Um, I don't know, guys. I mean, did, did you think, would you go as far as to say that this is a feminist movie or just had sort of like moments of girl power? I mean, yeah. I would say, oh, go ahead, Jordan. I think that maybe calling it like somewhat of a girl power movie without, um, without making a statement one way or another on it being feminist, right? Because like, yeah, she kicks a bunch of ass, but that is, it's not an anti-feminist thing, but it's not necessarily in itself anything feminist. I don't know. Like getting hung up on the labels is um is always fun and kind of our mission statement here. So let's do it. But like <laughs> it doesn't necessarily tell you anything uh very meaningful about it. Certainly this one has a lot more going on with gender and with that character like more generally than either of the earlier Iron Man movies. Yeah. I mean I would say that um this also Iron Man also plays into a very proud tradition in English literature going back of course hundreds of years very popular in the 17th 18th century of following a play with a nice monologue that explains to the audience the moral of the story in a way that they are comfortable with that is not quite what the actual moral of the story is. Like it's like a Congreve play, right? Where it's like and this is why you should all stay home and take care of your families. <laughs> Right. right when the real and it's like that's not what the concrete play is about at all, um, and it's a bit more complicated than that. I do think it's a cop out to take away her powers so abruptly, and it's just sort of telling that they don't even show it her really going through anything in like a major way. Um, but I, I and I but I also it does I guess they want to reset it so that they don't have to. She's powerful enough as it is being in charge of his business empire. If they want to keep that character around. Um, um. 
But yeah, actually, I, mean, I actually thought going into this movie that like this is when he finally proposes to and or marries her. Because it's interesting that like they've been a very solid couple now for four movies because I'm going to count the Avengers as being and they've gone through a lot together and they sort of run a company together and yet it's it, you never I don't know. I mean, it, I, I guess it's not it's not weird that it didn't happen, but I sort of felt like this would be the time that there's like, you know, a, a, a huge Tony Stark engagement gesture with like a special diamond that like he has he has carved himself. Yeah. Um, diamond that could very it would well be a whole be. new element. He he invents a new <laughs> element and gives yeah. it to her on a ring. I do think. Oh, go ahead. I think I like the way that they handle that. That uh, suddenly in the Avengers they're living together, right? And like they're, you know, you don't need a ceremony. He already uh, they live together. She runs his company. His uh, his suits, which only work for him, actually work for her also. Like, you know, you don't need to put a ring on it. They're stable. Yeah, I think I think that honestly, I think Maya Maya, I think is that her name, right? Is the uh, is the more feminist character? If you want to talk about who's sort of challenged, because the way that which the movie is feminist is that it very conspicuously declines to do certain things that happen a lot in superhero movies that are very bad, such as like the damsel in distress being totally helpless, right? And it's like, no, we'll make her helpful, and that's not necessarily like making a positive statement is just declining to make a bad one <laughs> right and, but i think I, I like the character of maya more as as a kind of challenge to tropes because she's capable she has a reason for doing what she's doing uh i like that she's not ashamed of what she's done with tony stark in the past and she's capable of handling it as an adult that that she sort of lures tony stark into conversations with him in the hopes of sort of handing him over uh business wise but she isn't like a henchman she doesn't give up her will to guy pierce she's like a legitimate business partner to him right like, i feel I like one of one of your pet peeves is when like a good guy a good guy points out to a bad guy that you have a choice and the right. bad guy's like oh i have a ch- i don't have to do that evil plan yeah. and that, that kind of happens here it proves to be irrelevant but it sort of is like one of these things like you don't have to be evil. She's like, oh, maybe I don't have to be evil. Well, I, 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 I hate it when they say it and the bad guy gets, goes, yes. Right? Like, 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 of course I don't have to be evil. When the bad guy's like, you're being absurd, of course I have to be evil. It's not so bad. Um, <laughs> like, and, I, and I feel like, the, like Maya and, all, and Killian's relationship, uh, where she sort of is, is hooked into him and like, he doesn't really respect her opinion, but she seems trying to sort of hope that he will because she he, she's like his business partner and she also overvalues her own negotiating position in a in a fairly mature way right she's sort of like when she threatens to kill herself right is like the big moment for her where she's like i matter too much to this operation and i'm willing to kill myself in a brinksmanship move so that you'll do what i want and then he shoots her that's sort of her mistake yeah. it's not like oh i loved you right there, there's no moment where she's like <laughs> oh we could have been something together which totally would have happened she's not like she's not um she's She's not Harley Quinn, right? Like she's not like codependent. Sure. Yeah. She's just yeah. like she's just a vice president. She's leaning in. That's all she's doing. She's leaning yeah. in. <laughs> and, and I believe that she and Pepper talk about her technology, which means that it does pass the the Bechdel test if fractionally. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. They have names and everything. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> can, I ask, can I ask a quick question? <laughs> <laughs> that settles it. Feminist movie to the core. Yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> have a conversation I think that, yeah. I think the conversation rule is is more crucial even than the names rule because there are lots of movies when people don't have names, right? Like Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Or they live. They live where he's just not a. But anyway, what was the question, Matt? How do how 
how do Tony and Pepper get off the oil rig at the end? Because doesn't he Eagles. destroy Eagles? The, yeah, Eagles. Eagles. Oh, you're the wind lord. Yeah. So, I was I'm also satisfied by that answer. Same question, right? I was like, you know, he's like, all right, you know, do it, Jarvis. Blow them all up. And you see, like, the, the sort of the big fat suit blow up and, like, the little multi-suit blow up. And I'm, I'm picturing, like, five miles away, War Machine and the President. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, maybe is it like Goldeneye, where like the the uh, the military team comes to evacuate them, and they're all in gunny sacks, and they're just like picking <laughs> out, and they're surrounded by the Marines. Does that yeah. scene happen? Oh man, yeah, or is there like the, a deleted the, scene, which is just like a twenty-minute-long evacuation by like passenger boat? Where, well, like, actually, yeah. you know what? How did he get there? He got there by boat. He took the boat back. <laughs> oh, that's true. He took the speedboat. He took ah, that, that works. Yeah. Okay. Which is, of course, unscathed through all this. Speaking, yeah. of, speaking of drone warfare, of technology, of, you know, uh, representations of self, right? Like, uh, Jarvis, I think, is the real hero of uh, Iron Man 3. Right, oh. like, doesn't he? Doesn't he really save the day? I mean, like, uh, in 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 essence, Tony says to Jarvis, "Jarvis, win this fight for me," and he does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. not to mention pulling him out of the 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 underwater where he's sort of pinned down by debris and unconscious. Which reminds me, I don't know if there's anyone else that scene in Aladdin where Aladdin's unconscious underwater and the genie comes out and saves him, even though he hasn't made a wish for the genie to save him. That, like, Jarvis literally pulls him out of the debris. Right, but he pulls him out with his own hand, which was really poetic, I felt. Like, is Jarvis supposed to be an independent character from Tony Stark, or is Jarvis supposed to be an aspect or kind of a semi-dependent product of Tony Stark's imagination? Uh, like, like where in the Phantasmagoria or whatever is... Uh, yeah, is I mean, I think, I think the second... Like, look, Jarvis has been 100% programmed by Tony Stark. And I think... I, I actually thought of this during the Avengers, where Tony Stark is about to fly to his death with the bomb. And it was Jarvis who suggests that, like, do you want me to see if Miss Potts could get on the phone? And then Tony's like, all right, might as well. And it's sort of like the, the idea that, like, you know... I, I do like this idea that, like, Jarvis is some sort of a reflection of maybe aspects of Tony's personality that like he doesn't always want to acknowledge such as this sort of caution and this sort of like uh this analytical side instead of this sort of emotional um uh impulsive side mm -hmm. I like I, it makes me think of that scene uh, which I feel like is really important in the movie where Tony Tony Stark is saying to the little kid that when you save somebody you shouldn't make a big deal about it right or else <laughs> you'll come off as like what does he say he's not ostentatious like grandiose like, grandiose and like Jarvis is like is like comically humble about his like massive technological resources right and so like Jarvis is kind of like the face that Tony Stark puts on his power to keep himself from being too grandiose <laughs> it's a humble service servant right it's a servant the servant aspect of tony stark rather than the master aspect of tony stark um and that sort of makes it palatable and understandable for people i was thinking was was i the only person thinking about like uh distributed computing infrastructure and like how jarvis quote unquote survived the the attack on tony's mansion in malibu right like i thought that jarvis was on a computer there but apparently he's on like a lot of computers everywhere Jarvis is in the cloud. <laughs> yeah, he's everywhere in the night. Wherever there's a baby crying, he'll be there. <laughs> I mean, the cloud means a computer somewhere else, right? Like the cloud is in like it's not like no, magic. It's, <laughs> it's like Aladdin and the genie. It's a cloud. 
<laughs> a lot of the times these days, it's more a logical computer than an actual like box with a computer in it. But like, uh, yeah, I don't know. So uh, hey, okay, hey, he's got a right. he's got a high availability, you know, high uh, high availability, high scalability, you know, redundant multiple failover redundant yeah. infrastructure. Well, I don't know about that because then when Jarvis when the suit is injured, Jarvis goes down and he cannot access Jarvis again until he repairs the suit. And even then Jarvis is sort of on the fritz because the suit is on the fritz. So is this sort of feeling like you can't just log into the mainframe and get Jarvis back a hundred percent that like you gotta fix the suit if you want to talk to Jarvis again. Mm. That's that wow, man. Let's yeah, gosh, let's talk about consistency and that stuff, you know. Let's, also, let's talk about dis- well, the, the question then is uh, has he in fact like killed Jarvis at the end yeah, right when he said Jar- Jar- Jarvis self destruct <laughs> Jarvis yeah drop the mic time for you to die <laughs> right. well, while we're on the subject of artificial intelligence can we just briefly give props to the movie for making a Westworld reference yeah that was a deep cut Wait, um, I didn't get it. What is Westworld? Westworld is it's basically a, term, a Western uh, version of Terminator. Oh, wow. That's that Yul Brenner movie? Yeah, I've Westworld? never seen it. I know. It's shocking, right? I haven't seen this movie, which is clearly uh, like was, a predecessor Terminator. It's down The Simpsons when they go to Itchy and Scratchy World and all the robots go crazy. That's very much like a Westworld scenario. Oh, okay. So and remind me, where was the reference? Oh, it's uh, one of the uh, extremist guys. Like, his eyes are glowing. And uh, <laughs> and then Tony Stark basically looks like, you're going all Westworld on me or something. <laughs> It's also because he's like a bald dude, like Yo Brenner. Oh, right, 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 right. right. <laughs> oh man. Can I just ask something? Like all the all the soldiers that supposedly like committed suicide, did nobody notice that they had limbs miraculously regrow before they did that? Well, are they off the grid? Okay, so so the one soldier who commits suicide in the small town, it seems like people knew that he was around and they knew that he committed suicide. So they should know that he had a limb regrow. Yeah, they're right? like, hey, he got his leg back, but then he got like really depressed and, and killed himself. Right, whereas the other soldiers appear to sort of have been disappeared, right? Like they've been taken to secret labs. They don't appear to be around their families that much anymore, right? Like they're kind of loner junkies. But that's a good question. Like, is there a point in which they get reintroduced? Do you get to Skype with your with your spouse while you're in the extremist program, yeah, right. Like uh, they they don't address that. I feel I, like I, I do agree know. that like the the extreme you, you got a suspense of disbelief when you're talking about like almost almost everybody in the extremist program uh, becomes evil and and conspires yeah. to to let's say assassinate the president. Um, you know, and like you, you almost expected like in some version of the draft that there's some sort of mind control aspect of it. I don't know if anyone saw the first GI Joe movie, but it's sort of like not only does it give you superpowers, but it makes you like, you know, yeah. you submit to Joseph Gordon-Levitt's uh, Cobra <laughs> Commander will. I mean, it's um, called extremists, right? So it's sort of it's extremism is what it is, right? It's like yeah. you get caught up in the extremism. Right. I meant uh, to make that point earlier that like ex- extremists and extremists, right, yeah. are are related. And it was very cool, though, because it also refers to, like, your extremities, right? So it's for regrowing your hand or for helping you blow up a public square. It's like it connects the idea of terrorism with the idea of, like, lost limbs in a really poetical, elegant way that's kind of horrifying. And it also, it also um, relates to kind of being in extremis, which is to say, like, you know, at the end of your rope or kind of yeah. tra- traumatized, right, somehow. Right, right. Almost in a state of near death, right? It's like is, is in an extremis. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. So it's all of these things. It's a very resonant name. They they did not pick it by accident. 
uh, and it means a lot of things. But yeah, but if you're in extremis, then you're pretty much you're pretty much somebody who's who's in a bad place, and you should not be hanging out with those people. You, you are you are near the end. Well, you know what else is in extremis? This podcast. Ah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> because we are uh, near the end. So thank you to all the panelists, and thank you for listening, and thank you in advance for sharing this with a friend that you think uh, would find it awesome. So uh, please go out and you know send that send that email, send a link to this uh, to this episode. If you'd like to join the conversation about Iron Man three, you can email podcast at overthinking it You can call two zero three two eight five six four zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Call or text. You can uh, join the the conversation that happens in the comments on the show notes of every episode. Um, you can uh, go to YouTube and watch some Eurovision videos, Euro videos, uh, if you want. Uh, there's some coming out uh, this week. We are going to meet our goal come hell or high water uh, to, uh, to review all 39 songs in the Eurovision Song Contest. And uh, we are also going to be back next week with another podcast. Until then, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Do you think that would not be paid to be placed in that? Do you, Do you think, think it's like, it? they, they like called around and they're like, what TV show should Happy be addicted to? Robert really needs to spend that family's money better than this. This is really irresponsible. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>